how we doing this morning? Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Numbers, Numbers 11. We are in a study uh, in this season of our church. We are in a sermon series called Tearing Down Strongholds. Um, today we are going to be looking at the stronghold of grumbling and complaining. And uh, I just would like to uh, point something out before I get too far into this. You understand the awkwardness of this topic, right? With um, pandemics, with politics, with CNN complaining about the Republicans and Fox News complaining and grumbling about the Democrats, with controversy around um, vaccines, the fact that I got up yesterday morning and went to my grandkids' soccer game at 8 a.m. and there was frost on the ground. I'm just saying, we've got some things going on in our culture that is creating grumbling and complaining. I would also say that um, in this season, this issue of all of the strongholds, when we were laying out the strongholds that we wanted to address when we were putting this series together several months ago, we knew that this was an important thing to address. We couldn't ignore it because our country, our culture, and our church is overrun with a spirit of grumbling and complaining, and I'm tired. And I would just say that, um, please, as you hear this, this is not a problem that I'm observing. I'm part of the problem. When you're with grumbling and complaining people, guess what I do? I start to grumble and complain about the grumblers and the complainers. I don't think that's a removal from the problem. I'll acknowledge that I'm just as much a part of it. So how do you preach on grumbling and complaining that by suggesting that we're going to talk on it, you guys go on the defensive immediately? You're already defensive, and I don't want to come across like I'm attacking. See, that's the challenge for me as the preacher today in this room. And it's interesting, as I was preparing, I went and I looked for a quote Uh, that I heard years ago before I was a pastor. It's one of the things actually that framed the way that I approach preaching or ministry. It was um, by my favorite dead preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And I wanted to go online and I wanted to make sure that I got it right. And many people attribute the quote to Spurgeon, but the problem is Spurgeon.org vehemently denies that he ever said it. So I don't even know if my favorite dead preacher is going to say the quote that I'm going to give you that's going to set the basis for the rest of the message. But since he hasn't claimed it and nobody knows where it's coming from, it's now mine. It goes on my tombstone, okay? And, and, and here's what I would like to say. Um, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion out of its cage and it'll fend for itself. So, so my prayer as we begin this message for your heart and for my heart, that we would be open to the things that God's word would have to say in Numbers 11. And my job as a preacher is simply to walk you through a passage and and the way that you can critique me as I preach today, make sure that everything that I say, every point that I make, you can see the basis of why I made it in the text. Does that make sense? Okay, so fair, you guys ready to jump in? Numbers 11, here we go. Numbers 11 is two stories. The first one is like this little Reader's Digest story. It's very quick. It's the first three verses. The next story is developed through the rest of the chapter. Numbers 11, one says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Verse 2, 
And the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire uh, died down. So they named the place uh, Tibera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. A couple observations just from those three verses. This is important. Note that the people did not complain to the Lord about their misfortunes. They complained in the hearing of the Lord. Their misfortunes in this case, not even defined. The text doesn't even uh, lay out what their misfortunes were. We don't know, but here's what we know. They complained in the hearing of the Lord, not to the Lord. Uh, Point number one, if you're going to be a grumbling and complaining person, do it in a place where the Lord can't hear you. Okay, just a suggestion. Problem with that suggestion is James 5, 9. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Like, like where can we go that God is not going to hear our grumbling and complaining? The second thing to note in these first three verses is God's anger literally burned against the people's grumbling and complaining. It burnt, the text says, the outlying parts of the camp. Now, I could take a lot of time and develop this. Numbers chapter 2, the entire chapter is devoted to spelling out and describing how you set up a wilderness camp. And I know for you guys, you're like, oh, let's go to Numbers 2. That would be riveting. Let's spend the rest of our time there. I think it would be better for me just to show you a picture of what Numbers 2 describes. Here's what a wilderness camp looked like. Two different renditions. It's unclear that the tribes that were north, south, east, and west in Numbers 2, if they lined up sequentially away from the center of the camp, if they did that based off the populations that are described in number two, Numbers 2 of the tribe, I find it interesting to note that their camp would have looked a whole lot like a cross in the middle of the wilderness. Maybe the ones, the three tribes that were to the east and the three to the north and the three to the south, maybe they laid up the way the other guy described it. I'm not sure which one of those pictures is more accurate, but here's what I know. The tabernacle was in the center of the camp. So when the people were grumbling, that was happening at the outer edges of the camp. The people that were grumbling and complaining by definition, physical proximity, they were the farthest away from the Lord. And when it says they burnt, his fire burned the outlying part of the camp, the Hebrew was very clear on this. He didn't just burn the tents. People were punished. The, the, the grumblers receive judgment. When people grumble, their hearts tend to be far from God. And the, another thing, just final thing from this story, note this. And the people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to God and then the fire died down. So in response to God's judgment, the people cried to Moses. Moses went to God. And the only thing that I would point out, I'll develop this more later, when there is a grumbling and complaining spirit um, at your work, in our culture, in our church, wherever that is, the leader's always caught between the grumblers and God. It's just part of the nature of what happens. So here's a question as I just read those three verses. So the people are grumbling and complaining. Did God really bring down fire and consume them? And one of the things as I think about that that I have to resolve in my own mind is, is God overreacting? Is he too harsh? Does the punishment fit the crime? Because that seems like a harsh response from God. Maybe another way to look at it and something that we can, should consider is that complaining is a bigger issue 
to God than we realize. So I'm going to run through, starting in verse 4, basically six reasons or six, uh, I would say it this way if you're keeping notes, God's complaint with complaining. Let's develop this as we go into the second story. It says this in verse 4, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The, the New King James Version says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. That word rabble there is an interesting word in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament. It's referring to interracial marriages. So it's saying, Now the mixed marriages had a strong craving. And this is something that you need to understand from the Old Testament. God often warns the people of Israel about taking foreign spouses or foreign wives. The issue is never interracial marriage. The issue is always interfaith marriage. The concern was that they would marry somebody from a different country and they would begin to worship the gods that those people worshipped. The, the rebuke and the command of God is not against interracial marriages. It is clearly against interfaith marriages. It says this, the, the rabble that was among them, they had a strong craving. Literally translated, that means they craved a craving. Now, now all of us have desires and cravings. Some of them are natural. Some of them are sinful. And the question becomes, when does our craving, when does that thing that we want, when does that cross from being just natural cravings to sin? And here's what I would tell you. Covetousness or craving becomes sin when we yield and by yield, I don't mean committing the act. I mean setting our minds on the object that is our desires. Some of you would ask, well, what is the harm in wanting other things if I don't yield and actually commit the act? This would be like saying, it doesn't hurt for me to just read through. It doesn't hurt for me just to look at the menu if I don't eat. Please tell me there's not a man that has said that to his wife. See, see, the yielding is not in the committing of the act. It's when we set our minds on it. Romans 8 verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is peace and life. The, the, the sin is committed, the craving becomes sinful when we yield, when it begins to occupy our mind, when we say, without that thing, I can't be happy, I can't know joy. I can notice an attractive person, but when I set my mind on that person, when that's the only thing that I think about, if I begin to fantasize about a potential relationship, it's not in committing the act of adultery that would be the sin, it's when I begin to set my mind on that thing, when I crave that person. If I believe that I cannot be happy this summer unless I get a new set of golf clubs, and every time I go to pay bills and I see everything else that we're spending money on and I'm like, why don't I have new golf clubs? That's the thing that would make me happy. Whatever it is that you're craving to, when you begin to believe that you need that thing or you can't be satisfied, you've yielded. That's when it crosses over sin. I don't care if it's a new house, a new spouse, if you want to hunt grouse, I don't care. Whatever you set your mind on, if that's the thing that you need, and if that thing becomes more important to you than God, it's danger. 
when we dwell on desire, yielding is only a matter of time. So God's complaint, I think I gave you this, God's complaint with complaining, number one, which I just described, it overinflates, it overinflates what's craved. It overinflates what's craved. Here's the second point. It distorts our perspective. Look at verse 4. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Verse 5. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Okay. Just a reminder so that we're all on the same page. If, when, when the people that are grumbling in the wilderness, when they lived back in Egypt... If they carried business cards, what was their job title? Slaves. They were slaves. Okay, they might have grown the food, they might have harvested the food, they might have served the food, but I really don't think they were enjoying a really wonderful diet. And it strikes me when they say this, remember all that food that we had in Egypt that cost us nothing? Yeah, the only thing it cost you was your freedom and the freedom of your children and of your family. Hey, here's some free heroin. It won't cost you anything except enslavement. Hey, one drink won't hurt you except for the alcoholic. That could be a return to enslavement distorts our perspective. Here's a third thing. It leads to despair. Hopefully you see this directly in the text. Verse 6, but now our strength is dried up. New King James Version says, but now our whole being is dried up. The New American Standard says, but now our appetite is gone. When you have a grumbling, complaining spirit, you are your own victim. A complaining, critical spirit will suck the strength out of your marriage, your workplace, your friendships, if you're, here's a test. Like if you're wondering, like is, is he talking to me? Like am, am I the grumbler and complainer that he's after? Do I have a grumbling and complaining um, heart? Here's a test. Ask your spouse. Ask your spouse, am I a complainer? If you're not married, ask your best friend, am I a complainer? If your immediate heart is like, oh, I don't want to ask that question because I don't want to hear what they have to say, you're a complainer. Okay? And, and, and these are the things. It will literally sap the strength. That's what the text says. A complaining spirit will lead to a negative outlook that will lead to isolation. True confessions. There, there are people in my life, there are people that I have um, been with in workplaces and there have been people that I've been with in church that when I walk by them, I don't want to go, hey, how you doing? Do you know why? Because I'm going to hear it. And that's not taken as a casual greeting. That is taken as an opportunity to unload grumbling and complaint. And there are people that I have been like, whoa, I'm not going to ask that. I don't have those 10 minutes. I'll never get them back. And truthfully, if I'm honest, I've been that person. I've been that person. We're, we're like, like, you should avoid me because when I'm consumed with a grumbling and complaining spirit, my appetite is gone. It, it creates isolation. Here's four. It diminishes God's provision. It diminishes God's provision. So as the text develops, they've said this in verse six, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all for us, but, uh, uh, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Okay. 
They're in despair over their current condition. They're elevating what they crave over God's provision. And I want you to look at this objectively for a minute just from the text. The, the thing that they crave back in Egypt is meat, fish, cucumbers, melon, leeks, onions, and garlic. All of that took effort. All of that had to be harvested, planted. There was work involved, okay? And they were ready to return to slavery to get the things that they craved. Manna? How did they get the manna? It showed up every morning. All they had to do was collect it. They didn't have to raise it. They didn't have to farm it. They didn't have to weed it. They didn't have to harvest it. It was God's provision for them every morning. But they looked at it and said, now all we've got to look at is this manna. Pretty stupid, right? Question, what are the things that we're craving right now that we would risk returning to slavery to get? What are the things that we're craving right now that you would risk shipwrecking your life for, that you would risk destroying your marriage, that you would risk ruining your reputation? That one night with that other someone? A couple clicks on a computer to look at pornography, cheating on your taxes, stealing. What, what are the things that you crave so bad that you would be willing to risk returning to slavery in order to get? Man, in the Old Testament, it's always used as a picture of God's provision. The prophet Jeremiah by the way, that guy didn't have an easy life. He had a difficult prophecy, a difficult word from the Lord that he had to deliver. He writes in Lamentations 3.21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So Jer Jeremiah reflecting on man, it's new every morning. God's provision is there for us. But because craving had diverted their attention to something they believed more, that they needed more than God's provision, all of a sudden they found themselves disregarding, diminishing God's provision. Look at verse 7. It's interesting. Manna is described here. It says this. Verse 7. Now the manna was like coriander seed in its appearance like that of bedellum. Verse 8. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it into, in handmills and beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So this is just crazy to me. So here's my best description of, ma of manna. This is the best that I can do. It, it was this thing that came with the dew. They would collect it every morning. They would take it back to their camp. They would beat it into flour. And then from the flour, they would form small cakes. And they would bake the cakes in oil which back then, oil was a luxury. It had a good taste. That's a sign that it tasted good. But it's flour pressed into cakes, baked in oil. Is it just me or is that a donut? <laughs> God's dropping donuts into their lap every day. And they're sitting there and going, I hate the donuts. Bring me back the onions and the garlic. Okay, that's what, that's what they're saying. Okay, just to prove the point, next week, no donuts. Onions, garlic laid out on the table. Happy Mother's Day. Okay, we want to drive this home for you. Okay? God is providing every day for them. But see, the problem with complaining is we become ungrateful. We're, we diminish God's provision 
And listen, this type of complaining is not an acknowledgement that you don't need God. Too often it is an acknowledgement that what you need to be happy is God and. God and the man of my dreams. God and the perfect career, God in the house by the lake, whatever that and is, that if I had God and this thing, what we're saying when we say that is God's not enough for us. Here's a fifth. Grumbling and complaining is contagious. Verse 10, when Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. So in verses 1 through 3, we had grumbling and complaining taking place at the outskirts of the camp with the people that were farthest away from the Lord. But by the time we get this far into this story, the grumbling has now spread throughout the camp. It's every man crying in their doorways. And as Moses walks through the camp, all he hears is the grumbling and complaining. All he hears is the crying It's contagious. Here's the sixth thing. It discourages leaders. Verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to a land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give me meat that we may eat. Verse 14, I am not able to carry all of this alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Verse 15, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I might not see the wretchedness. How does Moses come across in this complaint? Does he seem a little um, discouraged? A little frustrated? Maybe a little angry? See, see, here's what Moses is doing. He's, he's actually complaining about the complaining, complainers. How does that help? Okay. It's interesting. We're going to see in a moment. So please note how God responds to his complaining. Look what it says in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers among them, and bring them to the tent of the meeting, and let them take their stand and let them take their stand there with you, and I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and I will put it on them, so they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So the people complain, God's mad. Moses complains, Moses gets help. What just happened? Why is God mad at the people's complaining, but he doesn't have a problem with Moses when he complains. He actually solves the problem for him. He gets some help. What's the difference? It's who they complain to. The people were complaining tent to tent, household to household, tribe to tribe amongst themselves. Moses took his complaint directly to God. More on that later. Let's keep going. If you're keeping notes, here's kind of the middle point. What's worse than fire? Look what happens in verse 18. Moses says, or God says to Moses, tell the people, consecrate, for, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Listen to this. In response to their complaining, look what God does. He says, therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. 
You shall not eat for one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but for a whole month. Okay, stop right there for a minute. If that's as far as we read, it sounds like God is actually rewarding the complaining, right? Oh, that we had meat to eat. You want meat to eat? I'm going to provide you meat. I'm going to give it to you, not for just a couple days, but I'm going to give it to you for 30 days. If we were to stop there, we could make the argument that our grumbling and complaining the Lord hears and he responds to. Uh, There's a twist coming. Look at the next verse, end of verse 20. But for a whole month, until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Okay, focus on the part until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Okay, just as illustration, do me a favor, okay? Just for a second, this might be awkward. Just reach up your nose and pull something out. Can you guys do that for me? This might be the only time in your lives that it's socially acceptable because I've given you permission. Just go ahead, just, just grind away up there, okay? Pull something out. Nobody? I got the one guy here, I guess, so I got one. Okay, are you finding anything up there? Okay, (laughs) are you pleased with what you found? Not so much, okay? See, see, here's the point. I've never had anything come out of my nose that wasn't loathsome. I've had milk come out my nose. I've been sitting at dinner, somebody makes me laugh, and all of a sudden milk comes out my nose. I think I've had Coke come out my nose the same way. I didn't enjoy either one. I think I've had vomit come out my nose. I've never had anything come out of my nose that wasn't loathsome. And I don't think 30 days worth of meat, that's going to be the one exception where like, this is awesome. I don't think that's God's point. God is going to give the people here in providing them meat. He's going to give them a gift that they don't want. In essence, what God is saying here is he says, hey, you think that thing you want. You think that thing that you've been grumbling and complaining about, you think that thing that you need more than me, you think that thing's going to satisfy you, hey, I'm going to give it to you. You can have it. Hey, question, what are you chasing God for that may not be wrong, but you've elevated it in importance as it relates to your joy and satisfaction more than his provision for you? Beware People, beware of begging God for the non-essentials. In time, we might hate the very thing that we thought that we needed. It's interesting. I'm going to move a little bit quicker in verses 21 through 23. Moses says, where am I going to get all this meat? God says, don't worry about it. I got it, okay? Which raises a question. How many times even as a leader, how many times does God have to free you from slavery and and part the sea and provide water from the rock? How many times does he have to fulfill his promises before we quit questioning him. And then in verses 24 and through 30, God gives Moses the help. There's an outlining there of the 70 men who come alongside and help him with the burden of managing this great number of people in Israel that have now fallen to grumbling and complaining. Look at verse 31. It says, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and they gathered quail. Those who gathered the least gathered ten homers. Okay, so here's what happens. 
The people cry out for meat. God says, that's the thing you want. I'm going to give it to you. And what he does is he brings, uh, um, he brings um, quail out on the outskirts of the hamp, camp. Again, farthest away from the tabernacle in proximity. And he says, I'm going to pile them there. They're going to be piled outside your camp three feet high. Now, I don't know if they were flying three feet high and they were just really easy to catch or if they just fell from the sky and all the people picked it up. I don't understand the logistics. You can imagine whatever you want, okay? But here's what I want you to understand. When the quail hit the ground, the people that had been craving them ran from the presence of the Lord, further from the presence of the Lord. They started gathering quail, okay? And it says that the guy who gathered the least gathered 10 homers. That's 60 bushels, He spent 36 hours, all day, all night, all the next day, putting quail into bushels, okay? That was the guy who gathered the least. That was the lazy guy. That was the vegetarian. The guy who doesn't even eat quail. He's just out there putting quail into bushels, putting quail into bushels. Couple problems, okay? There's no refrigeration. (laughs) Comes home, walks in the front door. Hey, hon, I got you 10 bushels of quail. What am I going to do with all of that quail? I don't know, but there's 50 out on the porch. Get going. Like, like, have you guys ever eaten a quail? How many of you have eaten quail? Okay, in a restaurant, you, you got it. You, pl- you, you, you killed the quail. You plucked the f- quail. You prepared the quail, right? How big is a quail? How many ounces of meat? Like, typical quail, three to eight ounces. All that work, all that effort, all those bushels, all that gathering to go home to pluck to get three to five ounces of meat. All of that work, ignoring God's provision that came to them without any effort in order to get the thing that they desired. It says in verse 32 at the end, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. In verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Psalm 105, write this verse down if you'd write anything down in the margins of your Bible. In Psalm 106:15, it says this, and he gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their souls. He gave them the request, but he sent leanness into their souls, the thing that they thought would make them happy, the thing that they grumbled and complained in the hearing of the Lord to have. Like, like what's worse than fire? Getting the very thing that you thought you would make you, you're, that would make you happy, and at the end of the day, you're still not happy. Some of you here, there's been things in your life that you said, I cannot be happy until that happens. We've got single... Um, people in this room. I've got young people sitting right here, nose picker, he's right here, okay? I've got the younger people up front. And, and, and maybe what you will convince yourself somewhere along the line is you guys cannot be happy until you meet um, your Prince Charming or, or your whatever, the woman <laughs> of your dreams, okay? So, so until you find that special someone, your soulmate, you won't be happy. And you're like, I, I, I'm, I, I'm going to follow God. I'm committed to follow God, but I'm not going to be happy till I have that man of my dreams or whatever it is. Here would be my concern that in your pursuit, it's a rightful pursuit. It's not wrong to get married. I, I would hate for you to cut corners 
and say, well, I'm going to start dating guys, and I, and, and, I, and I know he might not be what God wants, and, and, and I'm not sure that this is God's provision, but you're making these decisions on your own when you're all emotional and you're falling in love and you're not getting counsel and you're overlooking things, believing what every future wife believes, that they can change the guy that they're dating. And in that moment, what you do is you say, I would rather have this because I can't be happy without it. And in that moment, my fear would be, and I could have others in this room tell you about it, there's a loneliness worse than being alone when we believe that we need God plus something else. For others of you, it could be something very different. For others of you who are saying, hey, if, if, if I need that job, and if I can't get that job, and if I don't get that promotion, and if my ch- paycheck doesn't grow or my net worth doesn't become a thing, I cannot be happy with God's provision without this other thing. I'm telling you, be careful. Numbers 11 is a warning. Don't crave that other thing to the point that you miss God's provision and his sufficiency. So again, I'll ask this question. Are are you a person who tends to grumble and complain? My fear would be that it's not a slight sin in God's eyes. It is actually an acknowledgement that you don't trust him, that you don't value his provision. See that in the text. So, so what do we do about it? That's the problem. How can, we, how can we solve the problem? If we identify in our hearts that we have a grumbling and complaining spirit, I know my heart is often prone to grumbling and complaining. Where can I take you in God's word if we're going to put off, if we're going to tear down strongholds, if we're going to put off grumbling and complaining, what do we put on in its place? Because I, as your preacher, as your shepherd, I've got to do better than taking you to Philippians 2.14 and say, well, do all things without grumbling and complaining. If you've got a grumbling and complaining spirit, stop it. Like, that doesn't help. We can't just stop patterns of thinkings and attitudes that have been formed over long times without putting something in its place. Can I suggest three things, again, from Scripture that I think help us tear down the stronghold of a grumbling and complaining spirit. Here's the first one. And this one might surprise you. The word I would use is lament. In Romans 8, 19, Paul is, is writing and what he's describing is that the whole creation is, is basically lamenting. It is mourning. It is awaiting an eager expectation what the text says, the return of Jesus Christ and when the creation is redeemed. And it is an acknowledgement that today our world is broken. It is unfair. There is injustice. There is trials. There are consequences to sin. There is sickness. There are many things in our current construct, in our broken world, that we have to grumble and complain about. Life is difficult injustice. So, so how do we respond biblically when there are things that rightfully would cause us to grumble and complain in the brokenness of this world? How do we respond rightly? How can we um, voice our complaint, be honest about our hearts in a way that is both honorous, honoring the Lord and honest? And it's interesting, in the book of Psalms, There are several chapters, actually many chapters that would be entitled Lament Psalms or times when the psalmist or the author is pouring out his heart to God and telling him exactly how he feels. 
Psalms of lament include, but no means limited to this. Psalm 6, 13, 22, 30, 31, 32, 51, 69, 91, 102, and 130. And that's not an entire list. All you have to do is Google. I hope you weren't trying to write those down quick. All you have to do is Google Psalms of lament, and it'll point you in the direction of these psalms. There's more lament psalms in the book of Psalms than any other type of psalm. There's more lament psalms than there are just praise and worship songs. Lament psalms share common elements. They reflect a crisis from which the author is begging God for deliverance. They do not deny God's sovereignty or goodness. To the contrary, they view God's goodness as the solution to their problem. And as you read the lament psalms, they are intentionally vague. And I believe God did that for a reason because we don't have all the details of why the psalmist is complaining to God, why he's lamenting to God, and it allows us to better relate to what the author is going through. One example that I'll give you, I'll just give it to you from Psalm 55, two verses, verse 2 and verse 17. Can you put those on the screen? It says this in Psalm 55, 2, Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Then in verse 17, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and I moan, and he hears my voice. Okay, listen, God destroyed part of the camp of Israel because of their grumbling and complaining, and now the psalmist is saying, I never quit complaining. I do it morning, noon, and night. The difference is he's bringing his complaints directly to the Lord. God is not intimidated by your complaints, and he's not against hearing how your heart feels. The lament psalms follow a similar or same pattern of construction. They state the problem. And quite often, what the psalmist is bringing to the attention of the Lord is, why are you doing nothing? Are you unattentive? Why don't you act? Why do I continue to wait? The complaint is directed directly at the Lord because at the end of the day, he's the only one that can solve it. The writer petitions God to be attentive and to act. He communicates his confidence in God's character and his ability to attend to the matter. And what the psalmist knows about God, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his goodness, is the thing that gives the writer the confidence to bring his complaint to the Lord. And please hear this. This is important. What you will often see in a psalm of lament is that the author voices his complaint to God and in the very same psalm will sing his praises even though the circumstances have yet to change. Listen, God's not scared of your complaints, but when you bring your complaints to God, you're not attacking his character. You're not doubting his goodness. You're acknowledging who he is for who he is. You're acknowledging what your heart feels in that moment, and you're bringing your petitions, your complaints, and your lament to him understanding that he's the one who can save. Number one is lament. Here's a second thing, contentment. For this, I'm going to take you to 1 Timothy, verse, uh, six through t- uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Straight from the text. 1 Timothy 6, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. And, and I would define contentment for the purposes this morning, satisfied with God's provision. Contentment has a partner in this verse. Godliness and contentment walk hand in hand. We are never content with who we are. 
we are always content with what we have. Content people are not complaining people. I've been asking, are you a complainer? Are you a grumbler? In this season, in our culture, have you let your spirit slide into grumbling and complaining? If that is true, the only argument we can make is that we're not content. We're not content. Okay? Well, 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 how do I develop contentment? I'm glad you asked. Keep reading the text. Verse 7, we look to eternity. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. A view towards eternity. Continue to remember, this place is not our home. Sat with a person in our church this week. Battling cancer, will not win. Eyes focused on eternity. And when I see somebody in that condition who can be thankful for all the blessings that God has given her and what awaits her on the other side of this trial, I'm I'm left sitting there not feeling really good about my grumbling and complaining spirit, you know? She set her eyes towards eternity. She understands that this trial is temporary and this is not her home. Here's the second thing. Look to eternity, let enough be enough. Verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. More does not equal contentment. More does not equal contentment. Oh, by the way, found a quote from my favorite dead uh, preacher, Spurgeon. Here it is. He says, you say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. You make a mistake. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. Learn to let enough be enough. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, there's that word again, same thing that we had in Numbers 11, through this craving, this love of money, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Craving leads to complaining, which leads to self-hurt. You're the one getting hurt. When When the text says, wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The visual there is it's somebody stabbing themselves with a knife. This love of money, this craving of money, the person that you're hurting the most is yourself. And then here's a third. Gratitude. Gratitude. If complaining and grumbling is the pandemic that is surrounding us, gratitude is... Gratitude is the cure. Gratitude is the cure. If complaining is the pandemic, then gratitude is the, I had it written down in my notes, vaccine, but the minute I said vaccine, I'd have a whole other problem in this room. So, and by the way, it's not just a stopgap. If complaining is the pandemic, gratitude is it's way better. It's the cure. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, well, should you be a grateful person? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's the will of God. Uh, Pretty sure it is. Just said it. Gratitude in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There's an old saying that I learned, actually, back when I was involved with Harvest Chicago, and it says this. It says, Gratitude is the attitude that sets the altitude for living. Gratitude is the attitude that sets the altitude for living. And the thing that I would point out, gratitude is a choice. It's a choice that you make. Whether or not you're grateful or have a spirit of gratitude is not determined by your circumstances. 
Gratitude is a choice that we make that sets the altitude for living. We choose our, our, our attitudes. And if we are not careful, our attitude choices become our outlook and then define our demeanor. And if the attitude that we're choosing is grumbling and complaining, we will quickly find ourselves consumed. Feeling gratitude and not expressing it is like wrapping a present and not giving it. He's playing, that means I must be about done, right? Isn't that the way that it works? Here's what I'd ask you to do. I'd ask you to bow your heads for a minute. I don't know your hearts. I know my heart. I know the prayer I need. And I would just ask this. With everything going on in our world, with how difficult this last year has been, how's your spirit? Are you finding yourself as a person who just has fallen into a pattern of grumbling and complaining? And please hear my heart. I don't think your complaints and your grumbling are always without merit. I would just encourage you to bring those complaints and that grumbling to the Lord. Express them to Him. Know that He's sufficient. Know that He's faithful. And place your trust there. How do you solve a grumbling spirit? If, if you say, this is my issue, and, and, and this is the thing that's been sucking the life out of me. It's not complicated. You own it. You confess it. You repent from it. And you quit hanging around the outskirts of the camp. You get yourself back to the center of the camp, into the presence of the Lord, and say, Lord, I'm going to need help with this stronghold because I'm not going to be able to tear it down by myself. So here's my complaint. I trust in your goodness. I fall at your mercy. Lord, change me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, a difficult truth. Maybe to receive, maybe to give, I don't know. But Father, we live in a world where the grumbling and complaining right now is incessant. And because of it, we have opportunity for the gospel, for the light to shine brightly, to be a people that is different, to be a people that are marked by gratitude, by contentment. Father, this is a moment where the gospel can advance because the world has gotten darker and people are discouraged and they don't know where to unload their frustrations and their complaints. And Father, I am just amazed that you would send your son amidst a grumbling and complaining people and that he would love us, that he would redeem us, and that he would purchase us and ransom us for us and free us from the penalty of sin. What an incredible truth. And in light of that, Lord, please impress on our hearts, there's very little that can happen to us in this world that would force us to choose to be ungrateful. It's in your name we pray. Amen.